Welcome to Successful You, a podcast about living your best self and pursuing your dreams and achieving your goals. I'm Sharon Kelly and today we're going to explore the concept of stress and how to handle it both in the long term and in the moment. This episode is focused on the impact of our perception of stress, of chronic stress, as well as some practical strategies of handling stress in the moment, particularly if we can tell we're moving beyond our own optimal levels of stress. I was talking with one of my coaches recently. And he's concerned that in this very tight economy, he's at risk of losing his job. One of the things he had created for himself is a mindfulness practice. One of his colleagues shared with him that he also thought he might be losing his job and he'd lost all motivation to try. He was even drinking more than usual. My client was marveling that the mindfulness practices that he'd put into place and used consistently every day was now really helpful in assisting him to remain grounded and calm. Instead of panicking, he expressed a readiness to both dig in and work harder at excelling in his current role, as well as lifting up his head to look for other opportunities that might better suit what he wants for himself in the future. Even though he was facing the stressful situation of being put on an improvement plan, He maintained that he was able to stay calm and leverage the added stress to fuel his motivation to dig in and work harder and start the process of looking for other potential avenues of work for himself. Where are you on that continuum? If you're not as grounded, thoughtful, and response-able as you would like to be under stressful conditions, what could be standing in your way? What is your perception of stress? And would you say that you're chronically stressed? During these strange times when everything is out of sync with our usual sense of so-called normal, levels of stress can run truly high, too high. And when optimal levels of stress are surpassed, then optimal performance becomes impossible. When change or anything out of the ordinary is perceived as a threat, this results in feeling fear. Stress is often seen as the ultimate enemy, but is it? Is stress the ultimate enemy? It turns out that stress is not the enemy and that some stress can be a good thing. Some level of stress can increase our alertness and improve our performance, which is why procrastinators often say they do their best work at the last minute. The optimal level of just enough stress can give us the edge to perform at our best. Researchers have also demonstrated that how one thinks about stress impacts performance too. When you change your mindset about stress and believe you can harness its benefits, the results can be incredible. We can leverage how it heightens our ability to focus because we're more alert and ready for action in stressful situations. When stress is perceived as a terribly bad thing, however, or if we go beyond that optimal level, stress can damage our ability to focus and ultimately our performance. When our mindset puts stress in the category of dangerous threat. Our mind perceives it to be an actual dangerous threat and then we lose our capacity, fuse our whole brain, and we get hijacked into an automatic fight, flight, or freeze response. The main players in this automatic response mode, when we sense danger, 
are the hormones cortisol and adrenaline and parts of the brain called the amygdalae and the hippocampi. When the fear response is activated, our body floods with hormones, increasing our blood pressure, heart rate, and the amount of sugar in our blood, among other things. The amygdalae, part of our emotional response center, regulates fear, as well as basic conditioned responses like those in the Pavlov's dogs experiments. The amygdalae scan for danger, and the hippocampi remember what was dangerous, and working together signals situations as perceived threat, and then the endocrine system is triggered to release adrenaline and cortisol to get us physiologically ready to deal with major threat, and then we run, fight, or freeze right up. If the threat were a real, live, dangerous animal that we need to outrun or fight off to survive, Getting flooded with cortisol is absolutely brilliant. Our senses are aroused, our bodies ramped up for action, and our brains get routed into automatic response mode, and we operate in our ancient survival instincts. If the threat is a bear or a cougar, like we may encounter roaming the woods outside and around Nanaimo during certain times of the year, we are amped up to get the heck out of Dodge, and that's a good thing. When our brain perceives change or uncertainty as a real threat, that is when it's not such a good thing. What turns out to be bad about stress is chronically high levels of stress for one. The other is going past the point of an optimal level of stress. Past that point is when automatism kicks in and we are limited to just using our fast-thinking reactionary system one. David Kahneman labels these two types of thinking and acting as System 1 and System 2. System 1 encompasses the limbic system and the brain stem, and System 2 is the more thoughtful, determined parts of our brain that encompasses the prefrontal cortex. When in System 1, where automatism kicks in, even old stories get triggered and we spout well-worn scripts, those nasty saboteurs and gremlins that judge everything and everybody, including ourselves, negatively. And we're more likely to pick a fight or run away or completely get stuck in a freeze state of not knowing how to move forward or retreat. And if we remain in chronically high levels of stress, Physiologically, that can lead to cardiac issues, anxiety, depression, and lack of motivation to even get off the couch or do anything at all. Much has been written about combating chronic stress, such as getting enough sleep, eating well, and exercising regularly. When we become chronically stressed, we can become what is sometimes called amygdalae regulated. In this highly reactive state, we're prone to make snapshot decisions that are less thought through and we tend to listen to our fear-based inner trash-talking voices. I will address that barrier to dreams and goals in another episode. When our amygdala, our eye-looking-outward, scans the environment and forever perceives stressful situations as threats, that's when we remain on high alert and our bodies continue to produce high levels of cortisol which in turn impacts our brain-body connection and can even impact neural connections in our brain, growing new brain cells in the amygdala, that eye looking outwards looking for danger, and killing off the neurons that store memories in the hippocampi. That's why it's called amygdala regulated, and that's why chronically stressed out people have a tough time remembering stuff.
and when we get past the point of optimal stress, we are much more reactive and less contemplative, empathic, creative, and curious. It's important, in my opinion, to know that everything we see, hear, and sense routes through our limbic brain first, the emotional brain, and that's why it's natural to have emotions arise in all circumstances. We may even have memories triggered by situations or even tones of voice that call forth memories that trigger feelings as well as inner voices that are self-sabotaging, automatic scripts that are less than helpful and usually destructive. Even if they were helpful in childhood, they are often not at all helpful in adulthood. When we're chronically stressed and continually flooded with cortisol, our amygdalae will have grown and we will have established well-worn neural pathways to react in maladaptive ways. This is how we become pleasers, hypervigilant, hyperrational, or avoiders when stress levels rise. And we have a smaller and smaller window of opportunity where we're able to stop, breathe, and remember what we really want and choose our responses instead of simply reacting. I'll address these kinds of trash-talking, less-than-helpful ways of talking to self or others in a future episode. However, for the time being, just know that they're also part of that automatic fight, flight, or freeze pattern. So what's your tell? I can tell I'm stressed if I've lost my keys. When determining what the optimal levels of stress are for us, it's helpful to know what our own personal signals of stress are, such as rapid breathing, flushing of the face, or sweaty palms. And then also have some practiced and reliable ways to bring ourselves back into the present, ground back into our bodies, slow down our breathing, and even bring our own heart rates back down from racing to a more normal resting heart rate. When we are not past the point of optimal stress, we still possess the ability to pause and breathe and make choices in the moment concerning how we choose to respond instead of reacting. We remain response-able. When we're chronically stressed, when just one more stress-inducing event occurs, even the slightest of pinches can trigger fight, flight, or freeze. When you're in a conflict with someone else, do you fight, freeze, or run away? When hearts race past that optimal level of stress, John Gottman's research on conflict within married couples identifies four types of destructive behavior. One of these behaviors he labels stonewalling, which is basically a complete physiological shutdown in which the stonewaller, who is kind of tuning you out or reading the paper or staring at you with glazed eyes, they've gone past the point of being able to either hear or process what the other party's saying. Stonewalling is like freezing. You're there, but you're not really there or fleeing. If you actually just leave the room or hang up or check out or sometimes just spend your life on the couch or in your bed. When fight shows up in a conflict, it could be physical, fists sometimes fly, but the other destructive behaviors that Gottman says show up in heated conflicts amongst couples, he labels contempt, blame, and criticism. 
pulling back from the overwhelm, knowing that there is a point beyond optimal stress where we can kick into destructive habits, it's extremely useful to know. Being able to notice your own signs of reaching a place beyond the point of optimal and then also having practice tactics to pull back into a more relaxed physiological state is extremely helpful and useful. This state where physiologically we're able and capable of accessing our whole brain and maintain the use of system two, the more deliberate and thoughtful parts of our brain, also helps us to stay present to both ourselves and the people around us. As I said earlier, everything routes through the limbic brain, so we cannot help but have feelings about everything we see, hear, and experience. However, if you can feel the emotions rise in your body and notice what they might be telling you without attaching to the feeling, and then breathe to relax and let the emotions subside. Breathing, maybe a few mindful, quiet breaths, checking in with our emotions and not getting swamped by them, can help us avoid an amygdala hijack and also allow the space to choose to tap into our system too, that deliberate, rational part of our brain, wherein we can choose empathy, creativity, and thoughtful action instead of reacting. When we keep breathing and maintain a state of prefrontal cortex regulation, we can stay engaged in empathy, curiosity, cognitive agility, and creativity that enables us to exercise choice. When we can pause, breathe, ground into our bodies in the present moment, we can with practice stop ourselves from sliding into automaticity and judgmental scripts instead of staying in the present moment and using our whole brain. It does help to practice. If you have a mindfulness practice where you practice, say, every morning, let's say you put it with uh, brushing your teeth or drinking your morning coffee, where you stop and focus just on the aroma of the coffee and the feeling or sensation of the breath going in and out, and if you practice that every day and get into a rhythm of knowing how to just simply quiet your mind, that actually has a huge impact. In a couple weeks, it actually reduces stress. After eight weeks of a mindfulness practice, if you had your brain scanned, there would also be actual changes in your brain structure where your amygdala will have shrunk and your hippocampi will have grown. So what are some strategies for dealing with constant stress? One is to practice, practice, practice your mindfulness and your mindful breathing. Taking five mindful breaths just five times a day is one simple, easy way to start. It's a good thing to read about it, sure. Find some apps to help and do some reading, but you have to actually practice in order to get good at it so that you can stop and breathe and ground yourself in the midst of a stressful moment. Practice so that when you need it, you have the capacity to stop, breathe, and choose. I love this quote by Viktor Frankl. Between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom.
learning to quiet our mind, learning to notice when we're stressed, and learning to pause and breathe and do things that fill us with joy and happiness has the power to bring us back into our bodies, get oxygen on the brain, and enable us to stay in prefrontal cortex regulation where we can choose our responses instead of just reacting in an amygdala hijack. We can also take command of our thinking by creating lists. A particular list I think is super helpful is to take out a piece of paper, put a big line down the middle of the page, and on one side, identify all the things you cannot control. Identifying and labeling fears has a way of putting a pin in them and deflating them somewhat. Then, in the other column, write down all the things you can control. What are they? Write them down. Think about them. Think about what you can control more often and longer than those things that are out of your control. Where I focus my attention can impact how stressed or optimistic I feel. Do I focus on the negative and everything that went wrong? Or do I focus on what is positive and what I really want and maybe what I'm thankful for? This last place to focus is called a gratitude practice. Nurturing gratitude has been identified as both a way to combat stress and build optimism. The idea is to scan our day and our life for that which we're grateful. Keeping this kind of journal is a proven method of nurturing optimism. When you keep such a journal, try adding three new things for which you're grateful for every day. Start with one and see how long it takes you to grow your list to a hundred. I'm not advocating a Pollyanna approach where we ignore what angers and pretend that everything is fine when clearly there's disparity and disrespect in this world. Just as important as finding ways to honor your anger, how can you create a time for yourself to take stock? If you're undertaking the work of confronting your own biases, how can you do that with self-compassion? Self-care is another strategy to combat stress. Self-care is not selfish. It's relevant and imperative for helping us deal with stress positively and with self-compassion. Self-care is not just bubble baths and rainbows. It's practical, and there are some ways that are more effective at building resilience than others. Exercise, nutrition, destructive habit avoidance, and building trust into our work or school relationships, family relationships, and friendships creates social safety, belonging, and identity in our work and school life. Maybe ask yourself, what self-care routines will help me care for my body, my relationships, and reduce stress? What's in the realm of my control regarding how I use my mind and what I focus on? How can I notice my emotions and learn from what I'm feeling without spiraling into wallowing in negative emotions and destructive negative self-talk? Learning how to deal with stress, notice stress, figuring out how to bring levels of stress down, those are all super helpful ways and will pay dividends in helping you to create a successful life as you define it. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Successful You. Today, we explored handling stress in the moment and ways to lower the overall sense of stress we have in our lives. 
Although it's natural for us to feel nervous, stressed, and fearful in times of uncertainty, exercising compassion, empathy, and kindness, both towards ourselves and others, improves our personal well-being. Setting up routines and structures to care for our own well-being, such as meditation, prayer, and mindfulness, as well as taking time to exercise and nourish ourselves physically, spiritually, and socially, do help us deal with stress. Such actions and thoughts ripple positively out towards everyone with whom we interact. We can unintentionally negatively impact those around us. Practicing the mindful breathing and even saying a short mantra like, I allow myself to feel, then I refocus before I react, can be helpful. Taking time to purposefully create habits and practices can boost positive feelings that can help us to be open and more expansive in our thinking and more connected with our social networks. This tighter connection with people is also a key aspect of helping to reduce stress and to flourish. Please remember to like and share this episode if you enjoyed it and if you know of others that might like to listen. Go over to the website to find episode notes and subscribe to this podcast, Successful You, a podcast about creating your version of success and sorting out how to get from where you are to where you want to go and discovering and dealing with whatever might be standing in your way. I'm your host, Sharon Kelly, and I look forward to our next episode where we'll explore the notion of gremlins or inner trash-talking voices or saboteurs. See you next time. Thank you.